Edwin Becker was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1945. Natural, and most people treat the subject lightly. Most people are skeptics and are not interested or concerned in the mysterious things which sometimes occur around them. However, today we have the story of one family which says it was forced into becoming concerned. Strange things began happening. Lights would go out, and electrical problems plagued the house. Doors would open and close on their own, and kitchen objects would shift across the countertops. Getting creeped out now. We tried to find a logical explanation for everything that happened, but uh, we couldn't. Edwin and Marcia were awakened by the disembodied crying of an old woman in the dining room. The only thing they could both agree on was that the house needed to be exercised. The NBC news crew later arrived and their work led to the first U.S. television broadcast of an exorcism. Light out, everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. In the studio, I'm joined by my host, Austin. Yo. What's up, man? How's it going? Doing all right. Hanging in there. Yeah, Hanging happy, in there. Happy Father's Day. You know? Oh, yeah. It was yesterday. Yeah, thank you. It was my first Father's Day yesterday, and uh, I was sick as a dog all weekend. I'm not sure if you can tell by my voice, but at least to me, it sounds a little bit different today. Yeah, a little nasally, but... A little nasally, I feel like a little bad. softer than normal, but... Maybe that works for today's episode. Yeah. But uh, I also want to say what's up to my my producer back there. What's up, Daniel? What's up, guys? So uh, today we are back in the paranormal realm, which I'm very excited about. It's been a little while since we've uh, dabbled in a haunting. And today we've got a very, very spooky one for you coming out of Chicago, Illinois. And this is the haunting of the Becker family. From the 1970s, this is an interesting one because... They actually invited an NBC news crew in to film an exorcism that took place in their home. Yeah, for the first time ever. For the first time ever. And I'm like, man, it'd be really cool if they still did that today. Right? Yeah, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be weird? Like, you turn on <laughs> like CNN or something and they're like, all right, today we're doing a... Uh, there's this family. They've been tormented by these entities in their house. Yeah, and, it'll be like the first time I tune into CNN and... In years right i know right i tuned back. in to cnn for that but it's like yeah it's it's a very interesting one because there is footage but uh don't get too excited because the footage is from the 1970s and it's black and white for some reason i think they had color i, I swear they must have and maybe it's just like you know it's been lost and converted or something from they tapes. did they only have this six minute but supposedly there was a much longer version but they lost it somewhere of course. in their archives of yeah. course because there's uh you know a lot of claims and uh we'll, we'll see if the evidence backs it up but it is a, a, a very interesting paranormal case that we'll be diving into before we do though i wanted to remind everybody to check out the cryptid merch collection we absolutely loved how everything turned out so much so that we're literally wearing it like Every day, yeah. one of us is wearing a piece of the collection. I think we're all wearing it today, are we? Yeah, I got Mothman. Oh, Daniel's oh, Daniel tapped Daniel. out. I'm wearing an old piece. Oh, of he's merch. wearing an OG piece. So that's that's all right though. We'll we'll let that pass. But yeah, check it out, mahamerch.com. the The collection is still available. I think all the designs are still out there. So get it while you can, because once it's out, we are not restocking it because we're moving on to the next collection uh, that we're beginning to work on. But it's a great way to support the show, and we really appreciate everybody out there who's already bought merch. 
it, it's uh, always fun to watch you guys, uh, or I guess see you guys post, you know, pictures wearing our merch and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, I've been wearing this out in public and people are already giving me compliments on it. So the designs are sweet. Turned out really I good. I love them. Yeah. yeah. I love this black shuck one. That's my favorite. Hell yeah. Turned out really cool. But yeah, another way to support the show that is free is just making sure you're subscribed on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, it just, you know, helps show grow. And the show is on its way to 400,000 subscribers on YouTube right now, which is absolutely amazing. Can't Crazy. believe it. Uh, the amount of growth we've had in the last year has just been been nuts. So it's awesome to have so many of you, you know, in the same group of of interest, right? Like we're all into this kind of darker side of 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 the universe and the paranormal world. And I just I love diving into it. I was it was interesting this this weekend, uh, not to get too sidetracked here, but I just wanted to mention I watched the movie Nefarious. Oh, how was that? Have Damn. you guys seen that yet? super good highly recommend it okay nice it's it, it's like a almost like a psychological thriller but the premise of it was very very interesting because it really ties into a lot of things we talk about on this show really and just a quick little uh synopsis without giving too much away basically it's a serial killer and he's on death row his execution date comes up and they send in this guy who's a psychiatrist i believe to figure out if he's sane or not and if he's insane then they're not going to execute him but if he says he is sane they will execute him and so he sits down and has a conversation with this guy and the guy's like i'm a demon <laughs> just straight up just straight up he's like i'm a demon and he's like okay sure you are so they start talking and he's you know kind of using his uh all of his education as a psychiatrist to try to diagnose him. And he's like, okay, this guy's clearly got multiple personalities going on because he'll go back and forth between Edward, the actual guy, and then he'll say, I'm nefarious, this demon. Nice. And it's it's honestly really well done. I don't know what the actor's name is that plays uh, Edward or nefarious, but it was a really, really good movie. I was just like, wow, this is this is... Because some of the things that he says in it was like actually makes you think because he explains like how God and hell works because he starts asking him these questions that you would ask a demon, an all-knowing demon. And it blew my mind, honestly. I was like, wow, this is really good. That is one thing I really like about this job is when I watch a horror movie, I can see what the writers get right and wrong about like demonology yeah, and stuff. It's yeah. like, oh, we've covered a lot of this stuff. So That's, that's, totally, that's totally how I, I look at things now is like I... I'm able to look at where they're driving inspiration from and just how accurate they get some of these things. Yeah. Which is very interesting. There's also another movie on Netflix called Apostle. If you haven't seen it, it's an original Netflix horror film. Very, very well done. Nice. It's a it's one of those like cults from like the early nineteen hundreds. It's a religious cult that's uh uh on this island and you know, there's some type of demonic entity there that you know kind of oversees this island or uh goddess i guess and it's it's very very another interesting one nice um yeah that's little, what i that's what i did this weekend was watched uh scary movies while so, you were sick yeah nice. uh, while I was yeah sick, so. we should get a lowdown on our horror movies because i watched i was on a sam raimi kick i watched drag me to hell I don't oh know if you've ever that's seen a good that one, one. Yeah. that was fun and then i also watched he produces this one but he made the originals i also watched uh the 2013 
Evil Dead. Oh, I was really pleasantly surprised by that one. That was really good. I haven't seen any of the Evil Dead movies yet. Oh, shit. So I need to go, because I know Evil Dead Rise came out, and I was yep, like, yeah. People were saying I think that Daniel's was really seen good. that, right? You've seen Evil Dead Rise? I haven't seen the new one, no, oh, but you I haven't have seen the 2013 one. Yeah. It is great. That one's so I think much I fun. need to go watch, because I was like looking, and I almost watched Evil Dead Rise, but I was like, oh, I should go watch the, the OG ones. The OG yeah. ones first. Evil Dead 2 is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh. It's really, it gets the camp horror, like kind of kind of cheesy and goofy, but like really well done prosthetics and cool cool shit going on. Nice. One nice. of my favorites. They're all from right. uh, They're from Michigan, too. Oh, yeah, rep Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell from uh, right, Perfect. right where I grew up. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the reason why I also bring up the movies, you're probably like, the guys, come on, I want to. I'm yeah, here for sorry, the haunting, I'm not here for the movie reviews. <laughs> well, it all kind of ties together, right? Because this this whole story begins in the 70s, which in 1971, the famous novel The Exorcist came out, right? Yeah. So The Exorcist, the book, came out in 1971. Everybody was just blown away by it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still to this day, it's one of the best film stories out there. And two years later, the movie came out. And so during the 1970s, this was really a cultural pivot for these mysterious religious rituals. I mean, everybody's like, you know, you watch The Exorcist and you kind of become obsessed with exorcisms and you want to know more and you want to. You want to see more of this, yeah. right? It's I remember so like people in the movie theaters were vomiting and passing yeah, out. Yeah. Like they have all those stories. I know. And yeah. watching The Exorcist back now, you're like, all right, you know, it's we're dated. We're all like desensitized from yeah. all of it, and obviously, our our technology when it comes to movies has gotten. Yeah, but for the time, I mean, oh, I still was, love it. It's it a awesome. classic. Yeah, that was awesome. So, some saw them as only horror entertainment. Others took this as a confirmation, though. That demons and evil spirits can invade the physical world. And that's what I love about it is I love horror films, especially when it comes to the paranormal and the in demons and angels is because, and it might just be because of my religious upbringing, but it just, it tickles something deep within. Oh yeah. Where afterwards I'm sitting there really questioning. I'm like, man, Maybe this shit is weird, real. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe it is real, and maybe if I'm just like denying its existence is is to make me feel better, but really this is what's actually going on. Yeah, and I should take this more seriously. So that same year, the Exorcist book hit the shelves. NBC local news in Chicago featured a six-minute segment showing the first ever televised exorcism. The Chicago couple's home had been plagued by evil spirits, and the home desperately needed to be exorcised. But these entities weren't just a spotlight for mainstream media. They were actually tearing the Becker family apart. Edwin Becker was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1945. He was raised in an abusive, broken home, and he spent his early years in a Catholic children's institution. While there, he actually learned Latin and served as an altar boy during Mass. When he reached young adulthood, he developed an interest in R&B music and became a professional touring musician. And during his tours around the country, he met his future wife, Marsha. They ended up getting married in 1967, and they've been together for over 50 years. But their relationship was tested the most when paranormal events began infesting their home. In June of 1970, Marsha and Edwin lived in an apartment complex. Marsha was seven months pregnant with their first child, 
and their landlord planned to kick them out ever since he found out about the pregnancy. At the time, landlords could kick their tenants out for almost any reason, and many apartment complexes didn't want a crying baby with diaper pickup and delivery services. So Edwin and Marcia began looking for a new place to stay. But most of the landlords in the local area also didn't want any newborns in their apartments, which this is crazy. I mean, this yeah, is straight discrimination. Right? Yeah. So Edwin looked through the newspaper looking for a potential home to buy. And that's when he saw an ad selling an air estate. So an air estate, which is H-E-I-R estate, is when the previous owner didn't have the property in a will or a trust. Sometimes that's because they're just, they weren't considering their property and finances before they passed. Sometimes people do this also despite their children. Right. So keep to that, make sure it doesn't go to them. Exactly. Yeah. So keep that in mind. So by default, the property is just passed on to their heirs or next of kin after the death. In this case, the property was passed to the, the deceased owner's five children. So they had to split up this entire property. And it was only listed for $16,500. That sounds kind of dirt cheap, but that was just under the median price range in 1970. But imagine you didn't set up a trust, then you know the government's going to take a huge chunk of this property sale, and then you have to divide that $16,500 between five children. So it's almost like the whoever owned that house was like, I don't like my kids. Yeah, I'm going to literally give them nothing. Yeah. The house was a duplex with one unit on the first floor and one on the second. It was in an older melting pot neighborhood in the inner city. He wasn't sure if Marsha would like how congested it was since she was from rural Oklahoma, but Edwin wanted to look at the property anyway. On June 24th, the day of his 24th birthday, he met the real estate agent outside the house on Campbell Street. When they first walked in, he noticed the place was in terrible condition. It was built in 1892 and had been in slow decline for the last few years. It needed new windows, flooring, and moldings. But Edwin was young at the time, and he figured he had enough money and energy to fix the place up himself. This would also make him the first homeowner in his family, so he was excited about the pride that came with it. But as he walked into the first floor unit, a hallway door swung open, and an elderly woman stood in the doorway. Edwin assumed she was the first floor tenant, she was covered in filth and held a small poodle over her shoulder. Edwin couldn't tell if the poodle was gray or a white dog because it was covered in filth as well. The dog bit its own fur because it had fleas, and Edwin could only imagine how dirty the unit actually was. The old woman then began yelling and swearing at Edwin. She screamed, we don't want you here. At the time, Edwin thought she meant we, as in her and her dog, but later he would realize that she might have been referencing someone else entirely. While the woman yelled, the real estate agent began yelling back. He said, Myra, get your ass back in your apartment and shut up. And the old woman stepped back into the unit and slammed the door. Later, Edwin asked why he yelled at the woman like that, and the real estate agent argued it was the only way to get Myra to listen. When they went up to the second story unit, Edwin saw that the entire place had been ransacked. The leather chairs had been stabbed and torn open. The floors were broken and the walls were riddled with holes. Edwin had heard rumors that the previous owner hid his money in the unit before passing away. This was a common rumor about older people who had lived through the Great Depression. So someone must have torn up the place looking for treasure. He also found out that the house had been lifted off the ground while a new basement was poured 
and then set back down. Yet still Edwin wanted the place, as he was confident he could fix it up. At 24, Edwin was young and naive. He never even bothered to ask how long the house had been on the market for, or how many people looked at it, and he never negotiated on the price. He had big dreams of renovating the whole place for himself and his family. When he took Marcia to see the place for the first time, she was worried, but she trusted her husband. He then showed her the basement and told her this is where he would build a laundry room. She took one step inside and said, Eddie, I'm never coming down here. Down in the dark, damp basement was a small room that smelled like burning wood and another small room with a locked door. They argued a bit, but Edwin eventually agreed to build a laundry unit upstairs instead. When Marcia saw the upstairs, she thought as long as they could fix it up and put some flowers and some curtains up, she could make this property their home. But it wasn't that easy. Marcia rarely opened up about her sensitivity to the paranormal, but Edwin knew she could sense something was off. Even before she got to the front door, she could sense it. And when she saw the stairs, she felt like they were infinitely expanding upwards but she kept these feelings to herself. She didn't want Edwin to know how uneasy she felt because he looked so excited about buying a house. As for Edwin, he didn't believe in the paranormal at the time. He was a tech guy who worked with computers, and every problem he came across had a rational explanation and rational solutions. He later confessed he was actually more scared of people than ghosts. After growing up in an abusive home and spending some time in children's institutions, Ghosts were the least of his concerns, at least up until he bought the house on Campbell Street. Edwin and Marcia ended up buying the house for $16,500 with no down payment. Their monthly payment would only be around $160. Man, weren't those the good old days? $160 mortgage payment? Jeez. And on closing day, the children of the previous owners each showed up with their lawyers. All five children sat on the opposite side of the table. Each one brought their own attorney. Each wanted their fair share. There was also one extra attorney present for Myra. At one point, the children got into an argument over the $2.43 real estate photo that was used for the listing, as none of them wanted to pay for it. After the arguing, the real estate agent eventually took out the money from his wallet and paid for it himself. No one even thanked him. This was the first time Edwin ever met the family, and he could sense the hatred between them all. As they signed all the papers, Edwin formally agreed to keep Myra as a tenant in the rental unit for at least 120 days. Edwin didn't mind because he needed the money. The $120 she paid in rent would help him fund the repairs he had to make. The first thing Edwin did with his property was change all the locks throughout the house. And Myra popped her head out the window, shouting, You shouldn't be here. What are you doing? After Edwin yelled back at her, she fled back inside. He later gave her a new key to her apartment and he noticed all her shades were drawn and she had no lights on. She lived in complete darkness most of the time. And Myra's behavior would only get stranger the more he got to know her. One day, Edwin and his 14-year-old brother were painting one of the rooms on the second story. The door opened and in came Myra. She was laughing at the top of her lungs with a crazed look on her face. Edwin's brother had no idea another person was in the building with them, so he began to freak out. Edwin then grabbed Myra by the shoulders and led her out the room. Her hysterical laughter then changed to blubbering and weeping as she left. This was one of the many times Myra would barge into the second floor unit. Even Marcia later admitted that Myra had visited her often when Edwin wasn't around. 
She would randomly show up in the kitchen screaming curses at Marsha. And they had to endure this very strange behavior for 120 days. As Edwin cleared out the second story, he found an old Ouija board tucked away in one of the closets. He didn't think much of it, so he just tossed it out. Around this time, Marsha gave birth to their first daughter, Christine. After three days in the hospital, she came home, but she sensed the house had changed somehow. And when they got more furniture inside, she also began seeing things quietly move across the house on their own. Edwin shrugged her off. He thought she was just feeling cooped up in the new house and having the new baby had changed her body chemistry. Edwin later admitted that he was young and didn't understand women. So he thought her paranormal experiences were just a product of something else. He knew she wasn't used to life in the city and becoming a mother was a big change. Plus, many of Marsha's friends began distancing themselves from her. She could feel her friends backing away from the conversations whenever she talked about paranormal events. And she became isolated even from her own husband. After a while, Marsha became more and more frustrated and began to wear on their marriage. Marsha expressed that the paranormal activity made it difficult for her to hold on to reality, and she tried her best. And many years later, they both confessed that the paranormal activity had been the biggest strain on their five decades long marriage. As their marriage struggled, Edwin was also spending a bit more time out of the house working, so he installed a landline and a phone in the center of the house so they could call each other if they needed anything. But whenever he called from work, he noticed he would get a busy line meaning the phone was being used or off of the hook. Home phones were extremely expensive in the early 1970s, so Edwin would get frustrated for two reasons. He was being charged for the landline in every minute of the phone calls, plus he couldn't even talk to his wife. He'd get home in a bad mood, but Marcia didn't understand what was going on. When he told her that the line was always busy, they went into the room to inspect the landline and saw that the phone was dangling toward the floor. None of them knew how the phone had come off the hook, he figured it was a cat or something. But as time went on, he would get angrier and angrier every time the phone was found off the hook. It took him weeks to finally admit there might be something else out of the ordinary going on. When their first daughter was christened, Edwin then asked the priest Father Barnes if he'd come over and bless their house. He agreed and came over after the christening. When he arrived, Myra locked the outer door and began screaming at Father Barnes through the window. She cursed him and told him he shouldn't be there. After Edwin yelled back at her, they eventually got inside and Edwin apologized to Father Barnes. The priest then opened his bag, put on his stole, and began blessing the house. While saying a short prayer, he took a brass vial of holy water and moved into their daughter's future bedroom. When he raised his hand to cast out some of the water, the vial shattered in his palm and fell to the floor. In a panic, Father Barnes knelt down and began picking up the pieces while making the sign of the cross. Then he told Edwin he needed to leave immediately. Edwin begged him to stay, but Father Barnes began packing his bag. Then Edwin grabbed him by the shoulder, looked into his eyes, and told him he needed to bless his daughter's bedroom properly. Father Barnes returned to the room and said the fastest prayer possible. They watched as the priest ran into the bedroom closet and then down the stairs. Edwin can barely catch up to him to hand him the donation envelope, and just like that, Father Barnes was gone. Even though the blessing was frantic, Edwin and Marcia believed it would protect their daughter. But Edwin still wanted the rest of the house blessed. Every time he called Father Barnes, he refused. He said that his first blessing had been good enough. After Father Barnes began declining his phone calls, Edwin ambushed him at his church and demanded a full blessing on the house. Again, the priest refused. 
Finally, Edwin admitted that he thought the house might be haunted by ghosts. He explained how old the house was and several of the previous owners might have died inside the house and the spirits of the dead were haunting them. By the end of his explanation, Father Barnes told him that he and his wife just needed counseling. Edwin then got so angry he started yelling at the priest until he was ordered off the property. With no priest to help them, they thought they were at a dead end. Back in the 1970s, it was rare to have a local paranormal investigator available. It was a time when very little paranormal information was available to the public, and the social stigma of a haunting was much more intense. So without the help of a priest, Edwin didn't know what to do, and the last resort was to try and purge the house himself. Around the same time, Edwin discovered two hidden rooms down in the basement. He assumed one was a storage room and the other had one stored coal. The storage room had a lock on the door, so he thought there were tools or something valuable inside. When he finally broke the lock, he and his younger brother discovered the room was filled with pornography. There were videotapes and magazines all across the room, and there were shoeboxes tied with rubber bands filled with photographs. Many of the photographs had the limbs and body parts cut out. Some looked like candid photos of nudist colonies, some were cartoons, and others were cut out of porn magazines. Each picture was stacked together like a collection of baseball cards. Edwin later found an antique collector and sold them the entire porn collection for 60 bucks. And he noticed whoever put up this collection also put their name on some of the strange cutouts. Many of the photos were signed with the name Ben. Edwin figured that whoever did this was mentally ill, a sexual deviant, or maybe both. He also thought that since the door had been locked with a padlock, this room could have been used to keep someone locked inside. When anything strange happened in the house, Edwin would call out to Ben's ghost. He knew that all the paranormal and the activity might not have been caused by Ben, but Edwin began using Ben's name as a catch-all for anything paranormal that happened in the home. Edwin later thought that Ben might have drowned in the upstairs bathtub, and now a spirit was trapped in the house, especially the basement. After the 120-day period was up, Myra moved out of the first floor. Even though she was always problematic, the Beckers didn't realize that her presence might have actually protected the house because right after she left, strange things began happening. Lights would go out, and electrical problems plagued the house. Doors would open and close on their own, and kitchen objects would shift across the countertops. Marsha once saw her handheld mixer lift from its hook on the wall and float into the air. It slowly moved toward her across the room, about eight feet before it fell to the floor. Other times, Edwin would draw a bath, and he would leave for a moment and return, and he noticed the bathtub plug was removed and wrapped around the faucet. And as always, the home phone was constantly found off of the hook. When anything bad happened, Edwin would yell out to the ghost of Ben and ask him why. Nothing ever responded. But still, the paranormal activity continued. For Christmas 1970, Edwin invited some family members over to his new house. He made sure to invite his favorite aunt, Helen, who had been fighting cancer for years. After she arrived, he would catch Helen wandering cautiously from room to room, like she was inspecting every corner. At first, Edwin thought she was just admiring the work he had put into the place. But later, he realized she might have been seeing things they couldn't. Around the new year, Edwin bought Marcia a new puppy. Its name was Holly, a shepherd-husky mix. Holly was a normal dog, always barking at cars and people that passed by outside. But one night, the Beckers woke up to Holly barking at something in the backyard. Edwin heard something out on the back porch. Slow, heavy footsteps crossed the patio in the yard. 
but Edward couldn't see anyone out there. After this, footsteps inside the house became common. They'd also find their four-year-old cat named Kitty hissing at nothing in the living room, and they began hearing voices coming from the back porch at night. After months of living at the house, Edwin finally met his next-door neighbor, Walter. The first day they met, Walter invited him over, and they drank shots of Southern Comfort in his basement. After a few drinks, Walter finally began telling Edwin what he knew about the house. Supposedly, the father had been extremely abusive toward his family, and their story was a tragedy. The mother died from a broken heart many years later. In her twilight years, she had lived with her son Bob, but after an argument, Bob moved out. Bob would still have walked past the house every day to go to work, but he refused to even look at the house. As time passed, his mother had to use a wheelchair, and she would sit near the window watching her son pass by every day. Sometimes she called out to him and he ignored her. She later passed. But that's weird. Whoa. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's it. My mic just uh, sort of yeah, the whole thing just cut out. Yeah, like. In like major distortion in the mic and then it just cut black yeah it's, it's back it's now. back completely fine what the hell was that i've never heard that in here <laughs> wow what if daniel picked up like a yeah. <laughs> play it backwards see if there's <laughs> yeah whoa that was weird. that was wild okay well all right strange things If it's safe to continue. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Sometimes she called out to him, but he ignored her. She later passed away in her wheelchair on the first floor. Another person who died in the home was an unnamed mentally ill son in his 20s. Walter never confirmed how he died, but rumors mentioned suicide. Another person who died was Ben's wife, who hanged herself in the basement. Walter claimed another son and father had also died in the house at different points, making a total of five deaths. After Myra had moved out of the first floor unit, Edwin began cleaning and fixing things up. One night while scrubbing the floorboards, he noticed a figure resembling a woman standing in the dark corner of the living room. She didn't move, and Edwin could barely see her face. At first he thought it was his wife, but the figure was much taller than Marcia. When he called out, Hello? There was no response, and the entity vanished in the blink of an eye. When Edwin finished cleaning and renovating the first floor, New tenants eventually moved in, an indigenous Canadian man named Danny and his wife. At first, Danny thought Edwin was crazy. He'd heard Edwin cleaning the basement and bleaching the walls, floors, and ceiling. And when he'd go down to look, he'd see Edwin pacing around talking to himself. In the basement, Edwin could feel Ben's presence the strongest. And down in the darkest rooms, he always sensed that he was being watched. This basement seemed to be the focal point of the paranormal energy. And Edwin would often go down there and say things like, Ben, you old pervert, why don't you clean this place up? He'd also tell him that generations of his family members were full of idiots and psychopaths. Danny would hear him cursing at something that he couldn't see. So he thought Edwin just had a few screws loose. But not long after moving in, Danny and his wife started experiencing strange things as well. But they thought it was just Edwin. Edwin wouldn't find out until 40 years later but Danny's tools would often go missing, and the electricity in his unit would cut in and cut out while he was playing records. Danny blamed Edwin for stealing his tools and cutting his power. At the same time, Edwin and Marcia would hear doors slamming and furniture moving. 
and they just thought it was their new tenants. But over time, they both realized that the vanishing objects and the strange noises weren't from each other. Late at night, Edwin and Marcia could hear arguing coming from the first floor unit, and they thought it was their tenants. But at the same time, Danny and his wife would hear arguing coming from the second floor unit. So both couples thought they were hearing each other arguing. The disembodied voices were actually coming from an empty room throughout the house. Danny had a background in indigenous spiritual beliefs, and he was also extremely superstitious. Later, when he inspected Edwin's right hand, he noticed he had a black star sapphire ring on one of his fingers. He warned Edwin that black stones brought bad luck, so Edwin immediately removed the ring and locked it away in a safety deposit box. After Danny explained how superstitious he was, Edwin made sure to not mention ghosts around him. But strange events kept happening. Objects would shift, lights would flicker, and the arguing voices would shout at them at night. So Edwin reached out to one of his friends, George, a Vietnam vet who was blind, and borrowed his high-quality tape recorder. He waited for the voices to return at night so he could capture them on tape. But right as he clicked the red button on the recorder, the voices would fall silent. Every single time he tried to record the voices, they stopped. This made Edwin believe that these spirits were intelligent entities. The spirits could somehow read his mind and sense his intentions, and the paranormal activity would vanish whenever he tried to pull out a tape recorder. Other times, Edwin kept seeing the strange woman around the property, and he figured it might have been someone staying with Danny for a while, maybe a family member he was taking care of. Edwin would often see her outside or at the foot of the stairs, but he never thought much of it. He saw her more often as weeks passed, but she always remained silent. Later, he met with his next-door neighbor, Walter, again to ask some questions about the elderly woman who had died in the house. Walter was able to describe her from memory and his depiction matched the woman that Edwin kept seeing around the house. Meanwhile, Marcia and Edwin still argued over the paranormal activity. Even though Edwin had been a skeptic and now began to believe, he figured they were just harmless spirits. They never attacked them, so there's no reason to worry. He once saw the kitchen mixer move on its own, but if that's all the spirit could do, then why get upset? Edwin would even challenge the spirits. He would say things like, if you can move the mixer, why not the refrigerator? That would impress me. Marsha would then scold him for encouraging the entity, but nothing ever happened. He would then call Ben lame. The lights would sometimes flicker in response. To Edwin, it seemed like a minor problem they could handle. And on top of all this, Edwin still thought there was plenty of rational explanations for the strange things happening in the house. If there was a problem, he wouldn't quickly jump to the conclusion that it was ghosts. But Marsha took it much more seriously. Just because the paranormal activity was minor at the time, didn't mean that was all they were capable of. Edwin kept dismissing the concerns, and it got to the point where Marcia couldn't take it anymore. So she packed up her things and went to stay with her parents back in Oklahoma for a while, so Edwin was left alone in the house. Sure enough, the paranormal activity escalated. At first, something took Edwin's keys. Edwin was a creature of habit and always keeping his keys in the same place, on the hook near the back door, so he was certain the spirits hid them. He later found them in the kitchen sink and noticed that the garage key had been bent 90 degrees, but he couldn't understand why the garage key was targeted. Then the gas stove would turn on at random moments, and Edwin finally saw what his wife was talking about. This was the first time they ever manipulated something dangerous. Then Edwin had a burst of anger. In frustration, he threatened to burn the entire place to the ground. He asked the spirits how they would like wandering through an empty lot forever. Soon, Danny contacted Edwin and told him they would be moving out of the first floor unit. 
as they were tired of listening to the screaming matches and the furniture smashing upstairs. Danny's wife had also seen a strange man in one of their bedrooms one night, but he vanished. She also knows that the dining room chandelier would move whenever she was in the room, and she could smell burning wood coming from the basement constantly. The couple couldn't stand the paranormal activity any longer, so they moved out. After coming to the realization that these entities could be dangerous, Edwin traveled out to Tulsa and told his wife he understood her concerns and he was going to do something about it. Together, they looked through the yellow pages and found two ads for teams of psychic researchers. They invited both teams to the house, but Edwin could tell that they were charlatans. One of the psychics watched as the phone slowly came off the hook and left the house immediately in fear. Luckily, Edwin and Marsha later came across the psychic, Joseph de Luis. Joseph was locally famous for his work as a psychic in Chicago, and he worked with investigators on many high-profile cases. After Edwin told Joseph what was going on in his home, Joseph sent over an author named Tom Valentine. Tom had been a reporter for the New York Times, and he investigated the Beckers in their house. After a thorough preliminary investigation, Tom ended up believing their story. So he called in Joseph, who later showed up at the house with an assistant. At first, Edwin didn't like Joseph. He had black hair and a goatee, and Edwin thought he looked more like the devil than a psychic. Edwin was skeptical of him at first, but he let him inside. Joseph looked through the living room and the bedroom, and after answering a few questions, Edwin thought Joseph was just another charlatan. But then his assistant grabbed Edwin by the wrist and said, Bullets. After a moment of silence, she said, In the basement. Edwin was shocked because he knew exactly what she was referring to, but he had never told anyone about it. He had once found a jar of bullets, but never discarded them. He kept them above a rafter down in the basement. And from that moment on, Edwin began to believe Joseph and his assistant were the real deal. He gave them the keys to the whole house, including the garage, and they spent the next few hours rummaging through the house. In the end, Joseph told Edwin and Marcia that multiple entities, possibly demons, had infested the home. One was a man on the first floor where Danny and his wife had lived. And Joseph said he was so powerful he wasn't even sure if he could deal with it, but he would try. Another entity was an elderly woman, and another was a younger woman that had committed suicide in the garage. Edwin told them that the neighbor Walter said she had killed herself in the basement, but Joseph told him that she had died in the garage and her body was later moved to the basement. Joseph then left the house and contacted a Catholic priest, Joseph Wood, who had an NBC radio station. When Joseph asked if the priest could do anything to help, he said it would take a long time because he had to get permission from the archdiocese and they needed solid proof that there was possession of the home. In the end, Joseph Wood didn't get involved. Instead, he recommended a reverend from the Independent Spiritualist Church in Chicago, William Darrell Davis, who had some experience with demons. But Edwin soon realized William and Joseph didn't always work well together. The exorcist and the medium had different philosophies. Joseph wanted to open himself up to the entity to deal with it, but the reverend believed the only way to cleanse the house was to shut himself off from the entity. The only thing they could both agree on was that the house needed to be exorcised. And just a few days before the scheduled exorcism, Edwin and Marcia were awakened by the disembodied crying of an old woman in the dining room. Meanwhile, Father Joseph Wood had contacted NBC and told them what was going on. So Carol Simpson from Chicago's WMAQ which was owned by NBC, contacted Edwin. She asked if they could cover his story, but Edwin refused as he didn't want any exposure to the media. Edwin was afraid he would come off as crazy in the news report and he didn't want to deal with the attention. But Joseph approached him and asked if he would allow it. 
Up to now, Joseph hadn't asked Edwin to pay him anything. He had been patient with Edwin and explained to him every paranormal thing that had been going on in the house, but he still hadn't asked for any money. So he said the least he could do was get him some exposure on the news. So Edwin ended up agreeing. The NBC news crew later arrived and their work led to the first U.S. television broadcast of an exorcism. So just to put into perspective how big of a deal this actually was at the time, there were only three TV networks in 1970 in the U.S. Wow. Three channels and that was it. ABC, CBS, and NBC. So when you booted up the old tube TV there, you had the option between things like, it would be like Bonanza, The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour, or The Blob. That was it. You just had three choices at any given moment. That was all you could watch. And depending on the scheduling, they had a slot for the news, especially the, the local news usually had at least one slot per week. For NBC, the local news was a half hour on Saturdays, and this exorcism got about six minutes of coverage, which was a pretty big deal. That's a lot of people you know, watching it in the Chicago area. And they also aired a second piece that was supposedly longer the next Tuesday night outside of Chicago. So that's why this was such a big deal. You'd think now if if a haunting hit the local news, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But for something to hit the news at a time when there were only three networks, that's a lot of eyes on this case. And it was a time, remember, this was a the year that predated the Exorcist book. Right. So it wasn't even in vogue, really, to have an exorcism, especially of a house. It was... It was kind of this unheard of thing that they brought to the public. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm thinking now like the closest thing that I can kind of relate this to is the whole UFO phenomenon. You know, like even that doesn't seem to it's been on all the major mainstream uh, news news channels, and even then it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal to people. Yeah, you know, it's like. Yeah, a ton of papers were released on that. Yeah. I've even seen some of the footage that, you know, I'd never know if it's real or not, but they're like, this was footage from a fighter jet that they caught, you know, over the skies of whatever. And they just show yeah. the really well, strange if you've things. Been paying attention to this issue lately, the latest is uh this military whistleblower that came forward and gave like a interview. I think it was on News Nation, actually. And uh his uh, testimony is pretty interesting because uh, he's a, I mean, pretty reputable guy. Do you know what and, he, what uh, he worked in? Uh, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember the exact things. I mean, he was definitely like deep in in defense projects and Pentagon stuff, and he he made some pretty bold claims of which a lot of the stuff is not necessarily new to to many of us, but that the U.S. has you know, in their possession, recovered crafts and bodies of these crafts. And, you know, it didn't go much more detailed than that. But it's it's interesting how the paranormal continues over the years to come into the news over and over again. And yet it seems like a lot of people don't take it seriously still when I feel that that's like the one thing we should be taking extremely seriously is is the paranormal. And it's it's at least becoming more normal you know i think there'll be a day where we don't look at ufos and aliens and even just the spiritual world and ghosts and all that as 
paranormal anymore. That'll just be like a part of normal reality. Like we'll be able to accept it somehow. And obviously we're trying to figure out how to prove that through science, but I think we'll see it in our lifetime, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm down. I'm uh we have yet to cover a UFO episode since I've been on. So I've been oh. kind of fiending for a UFO yeah, we, episode. Maybe we need to do one here soon. I think I think we have a couple ideas with that. Yeah. Because, yeah, we need we should dive into this topic a little bit more because there's a lot of really interesting things that are coming out. There's a lot of things happening with this subject and uh, a lot of things to unpack, a lot of new new details coming out, which yeah. I think are very interesting. I mean, if, um, if, uh, if the Chinese government can get in spy balloons over, like, the Great yeah. Lakes, I'm not surprised what else is, is actually going Well, I think, I think one of the landing. biggest things that's really starting to catch on is the understanding of that this this phenomenon is is interdimensional that it's not yeah, yeah. necessarily you know always aliens from another planet another star system that there's some type of unexplainable something that's transdimensional that's actually here maybe been here the entire time but it's existing in a different dimension from us and and it's interesting how all this ties together that the ufos ties into the paranormal because when you think about a haunting or entities things like that obviously you know they're either they're either just invisible to our eyes existing in this reality this dimension or they're they are coming through in a different different dimension yeah and, and i i like that about this i i think we'll we'll touch on this later but marsha has a a few comments to say about about this where which really touched base with me because she said, you know, it's, it's hard to believe people when they think they have everything figured out when they're like, try to put X, Y, and Z all together where it's like, and a lot of the times these things don't make sense. So when you listen to people that think they're so sure about it, that's what makes you not want to believe. But yeah, Marsha brings up later, we'll talk about it. She goes, a lot of the times you, it, they're all individual circumstances they're not all the same the entities are different right so you can't you can't just put a blanket statement over all these things that are occurring ah that's a really that's a really good observation yeah. i tend to agree with that same uh just to go back to the uh whistleblower he was an air force veteran and a former member of the national geospatial intelligence agency and he was also a uh, part of the uap task force which is unidentified aerial phenomena Right, his name's uh, David Groose, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those are, those are the ones that I tend to believe in too. Anyone working in like um, Air Force, flying things around in the sky, they see some crazy stuff yeah. up there. And yeah, I'm more I I more tend to believe that than the the farmer finding some weird stuff sucking up its cows. I'm, yeah. I'm more tend to believe in like the the actual legit guys who are out there in the skies scanning it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the difficult thing, though, is because they are attached to the government that you always have to wonder, is this some type of, you know, like PSYOP? Is this some For type sure. of, are they trying to serve us misinformation to distract from the real truth? Oh, so you say you kind of are skeptical. of more Yeah, of the I'm, I'm skeptical releases. of all the, the government whistleblowers and stuff because it's like, it, it's... Sometimes I feel like it, all the information is almost too convenient and too simple for how complex I really believe this this issue is, and you know, especially the whole like Las Vegas UFO thing that happened. I don't know if you heard about that. No. But, oh man, yeah. So then, then like literally like 
think it was like the next day. I could I that could be wrong about the timing, but it was very close to when this whistleblower came out. There was an alleged UFO landing in Las Vegas in some dude's backyard, which I'm much more skeptical about this, but it's still interesting. So there is police body cam footage and a 911 call of uh, this family that's like, hey, there's this craft, something landed in their backyard, and they they believe they spotted like a being or the pilot of this craft. It was like eight or nine feet tall. And what's interesting is that police responded to it, and on police body cam footage prior to them getting there, I think, there's like something clearly comes across the sky. Like it looks like, and some people are explaining it's like, oh, it's just a meteor or something like that. But there's like a flash of light that comes across the sky right near where this supposedly happened. Yeah. And so there's all this talk about what what actually went on there. What did something crash? And there's footage that the family took there of this being that was out in the backyard somehow. And it's all very, Damn. very, very wild. And so it's just all this is happening at the, all at the same time. And I'm like, you know, it's all almost too convenient. And it's all... And it's always like whenever we get glimpses of the beings, it's always the classic like gray alien. Yeah. The, the big head, big eyes. It's always that look. Mm-hmm, the humanoid. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, ah. Uh, yeah. What know, are the chances that they look like Is that like what's us? really, yeah. really going on there? Or is this some type of orchestrated thing? You yeah. know what I mean? And it's kind of convenient because you said he saw that right after a bunch of the papers were released about. Yeah, it all happened like right after this whistleblower came out, yeah, which was all seems really a little bit weird. convenient. Very that the convenient. timing, right? And that's you know. what people are trying. And that's the, I mean, God, the whole UFO world's just a, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a hot I, mess, I follow but... a lot of it on Twitter, and it just like blows my mind at like how deep into this people are. And yeah, like, it's really got like a cult following to it now. Yeah, the ufologists. Right? Yeah, yeah, just like we're all we all are just hungry for the truth of what's really going on, and if we even understand what's really going on, right. And, because the government continues to, people from the government continue to come out and tell us that, yes, we know, we know. We, we've we been recovering shit for years. We've been back engineering this stuff. We know, we have a lot of information on what's going on, but we can't divulge it to the public for some right. reason. So, yeah, it's it's all it's all very interesting. And, you know, we continue to have political candidates come forward like, uh, day one, I'm going to disclose right. all the UFO. Yeah. No, yeah. That never happens. So. Nah. But yeah, sorry to get sidetracked there. It's just a interesting, kind of an interesting connection tied to all this and the media coverage. Yeah, the media coverage, look, look yeah. Back around, that's what it's about. So the news crew took footage of the house and the exorcism for two days. While the exorcism began, almost everyone was kept in the living room. All of them were required to wear holy crosses for protection. We've got our third class relic here today, which I don't know. Maybe it prevented a more serious attack earlier. Yeah. From that uh, little glitch we experienced. A few news crew members, Joseph DeLuise, the Reverend William Daryl Davis, and another minister from the same church went into the dining room to begin the ritual. They built a makeshift altar where they placed candles, a Bible, a crucifix, and the Eucharist. To start the three and a half hour ritual, William served communion. Soon after, Joseph fell into a trance. He described these as a total relaxation of mind and body, and this was how he opened himself up to communicate with spirits. As he fell deeper into the trance, a strong gust of wind blew through the dining room. It shook the curtains and rattled the blinds, but all the windows were sealed shut. And after Joseph began speaking, he later claimed a spirit was using his vocal cords. A spirit spoke through him, mentioning a picture and a number they needed. 
Reverend William asked him various questions through the trance, but the answers were cryptic and didn't make much sense. All the while, Joseph held onto a holy cross and a mirror which he would wave through the air. Joseph's strategy was to show the spirit that he had no reflection, and if he had no reflection, it didn't exist. During the ritual, others heard loud slamming noises throughout the house, and a flock of birds began chirping in the front yard. They were so loud the news crew couldn't completely remove their audio from the recordings. According to Edwin, he had recorded audio on his tape recorder, and when he listened back to it later, he could hear tapping and knocking noises, plus the voice of a child saying, Mama. But there was no children present at the exorcism. After Joseph eventually fell out of the trance, he asked William to serve the spirit communion. Then William blessed the house and gave the spirits a final warning. Here's a clip of that. In some parts of this house have been purified. Or if the house is clean and it was not replaced with sorrow and with love, then beware that danger seven times the fall which have left shall return. For this moment there is love. This moment there is release. And that which follows the individual will come from within himself and not from that which was here. So after this was released, uh, the popularity of hauntings in general just skyrocketed. And uh, many rewatched the news footage and they pointed out that there's a moment, they say around the 1 minute 34 mark. Uh, I don't, according to Edwin, I, we can watch this and you can tell me what you think. Supposedly there's something in the doorway that people claim to be a ghost. This past week, they said they were awakened by the sound of a woman crying. It came from the dining room, but there was no one in the house but themselves. That was it. I don't know if you caught it. <laughs> we can watch it again. There's It's like in 240p right yeah, there. Like, yeah. oh my God. It's right in that, right by the doorway. Yeah. Right there. Oh, okay. You see the little pop out there? Yeah, you see that? Yeah. Okay. So people claim there was no one in the room. Obviously, we can't confirm that. But yeah, people noticed that movement. That, later. to me, that's doesn't really look like an apparition or a ghost. It looks like almost like it's like a piece of cloth or something. Yeah, something maybe hanging on the door. Yeah, I don't know. That is that is interesting. I mean, that's a, we could have been a better angle to get that. Yeah. But I guess it was just kind of happenstance they noticed that, that there was that movement coming through the doorway. Yeah, I think it wasn't until like decades after yeah, the later fact that like, oh, someone noticed something that. there. Oh, yeah, maybe that is something. Unfortunately, though, supposedly, so they were there for days videotaping a ton of stuff but yeah unfortunately edwin tried to reach out to nbc and they said yeah we'll give you all the footage we have that's archived and then it was all gone oh wow this is basically all that's left Hmm, that's kind of fishy though if you ask me like is it just they didn't keep good record of it they didn't save it somewhere or did they are they hiding something yeah <laughs> yeah i can't imagine that just like keeping a ton of film reels of local news would would take up a lot of storage space but you never know but for something as big as this you'd think they would yeah true i wonder how the all these people who uploaded to youtube got a hold of this i know i was curious because even if you look at the uploader i don't 
Oh, Danny, take a look. There's at a there's here. like a couple channels that have it the same clip uploaded. How many years ago was this one? This is what eight years eight ago. Years. Yeah, and I think there's there's definitely a few channels that have it. So I'm like, I wonder where they're pulling it from. Right. It must be out there, publicly available somehow on some site somewhere. Yeah. It looks guess. like it was recorded on a VHS. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure a VHS. So I mean, it might be in like a or, public library or something. Or oh, older. Yeah. yeah, it's probably just in public record somewhere. Yeah, somewhere in Chicago. Interesting. So yeah, it was like shot on film, then it was stored on possibly a VHS tape, and then someone ripped this from a VHS tape. Yeah. So the quality is definitely getting degraded every time we're converting it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's just without having the original footage, it's hard to really like do much with it. So the ministers then went through the entire house, up to the roof and through the garage, spreading blessed salt. This was meant to seal the house and prevent the spirit from returning. Joseph believed that the spirit he communicated with was an old woman who was angry because she had been scammed out of some money. He also mentioned a number he was given during the trance, and he thought it might have been the number to a safety deposit box. The segment aired multiple times, and a longer segment aired outside of Illinois. The Becker haunting case quickly grew in popularity. The news reporters kept in touch with the Beckers as the weeks passed, and the Beckers told them that they had noticed that the house was quiet for several days after the ritual. The phone stayed on the hook, nothing moved on its own, and the disembodied crying was gone. Or at least that's what Edwin told the reporters. He later admitted he only told them everything was okay because he was exhausted from the media coverage, but the truth was, the paranormal activity never stopped. Edwin kept it mostly a secret, but he later told Joseph that the hauntings were still present. They could still hear the old woman crying, and objects kept moving through the house. So Joseph would come by and bless the house every so often. When Edwin asked why the entities remained in the house, Joseph explained that exorcisms are mostly meant to banish demons. They did basically nothing against earthbound spirits. Later, when Edwin was cleaning the first floor unit, he saw the apparition of an elderly woman one last time. She sat in a wheelchair looking out the window. In silence, she looked over at him and then back out of the window. When Edwin blinked, she vanished. A few nights later, Edwin and Marcia woke up at 5 a.m. to shrieking and screaming noises. He later confessed it was only after the exorcism that he experienced a moment in the house where he was truly terrified. For the last year, he had feared for the safety of his family, but nothing had ever confronted him face to face until one night when the shrieking suddenly stopped. After a brief silence, the bedroom door swung open and their dog Holly barreled into the room and jumped on the bed. Edwin and Marcia watched as Holly lowered her head and the fur along the ridge of her back stood straight up. She showed her teeth and growled, ready to fight whatever was in the room. Edwin stared at the doorway but couldn't see anything there. Confused, the Beckers didn't know what to do, but eventually their dog settled down. The next day, Holly vanished and they figured she ran off. As it turned out, their tenant, Danny, had an Afghan hound who would Okay, well, whatever this entity that took Holly is coming from my mic, apparently. <laughs> it just shut off completely. Ugh, so, so weird. Getting creeped out now. What the hell? As it turned out, their tenant, Danny, had an Afghan hound who he only had for four days, and it also had run away from the house. He let it out back so it could relieve itself when something spooked it. 
and the dog bolted toward the garage and hopped the back fence. Other times, the Beckers would hear the stand-up piano ring out late at night. Edwin's sister April had gifted him the piano, and it often rang out at night when no one else was around. It always played the same few notes and then fell silent. Edwin thought that his sister might have been plagued by demons, possibly before she gave him the piano. When she was young, she used Ouija boards, dabbled in the occult, and performed seances. She later had two children, and Edwin saw her as a strong woman. But he noticed something had slowly consumed her life. She soon lived in constant fear and could only sleep with the TV and radio on. Against his better judgment, Edwin let his sister and her family live in the first floor unit for a short period of time, and she became abusive to everyone around her, especially her husband and children. Edwin once caught her using a Ouija board in the house, so he smashed it in front of her. She then said she could see the ghost of a violent man named Henry in him. She began hearing voices and seeing the faces of ghosts superimposed on the faces of her family members. She'd also complain of nightmares where she was visited by a hooded figure. April was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and epilepsy. Over time, she became alienated from her friends and family, and she underwent treatment a few times, but nothing ever helped. She then ran off in the middle of the night with no money and none of her belongings. Edwin last heard she had joined a cult in Cicero, Illinois, and passed away many years later. His sister's experience made Edwin fear Ouija boards and the occult, especially inside his own house. Even though he was skeptical for a long time, his sister's experiences and his own personal experiences in the house made him look at the paranormal differently. Clearly, the exorcism had failed to remove the entities. So Edwin realized the only way to deal with the paranormal entities was to leave the house. He had been working three jobs at the time, so he saved every penny he could so they could finally leave the house. He eventually came across a different real estate opportunity, and he and Marcia finally abandoned the house. He tried to rent out the old haunted property, but all the tenants caught on to the paranormal activity and moved out. Meanwhile, Edwin's real estate agent Chuck showed the house on Campbell Street to dozens of potential buyers, but no one wanted it. When he later met with Chuck, Edwin finally confessed that the place was haunted, and the potential buyers could probably sense there was something off about the property. But then Chuck got excited and asked if it was actually haunted. Edwin didn't realize his agent was into the paranormal. Apparently, Chuck and his wife were obsessed with the paranormal and regularly held seances in their home. Seeing that Edwin's own realtor might be interested in buying the place, he told Chuck to call up his tenant Danny if he wanted confirmation that the place was haunted. Danny told him about all the strange things that had happened in the house. And once he got off the phone, Chuck told Edwin that he wanted to buy the property for himself, but he had no money. Edwin was so desperate to get rid of the property that he offered Chuck a quit-claim deed to quickly transfer over the property. It only cost $10. And Edwin also left him whatever was still in the house. Even after Edwin got rid of the property, the media kept following him, and tabloids kept reporting false stories about him. One story even reported about flying pig heads soaring through the house. In response, Edwin and Marcia delisted their names in the phone books and cut themselves off from all reporters. They've still experienced the paranormal in different houses as they lived in since then, but none have been as bad as the house on Campbell Street. If there was ever a slightest hint of negative paranormal energy in a potential house, they would leave and never look back. Years later, after suffering a near-fatal heart attack, Edwin moved with his wife into a house in the Ozark Mountains. He then opened up a collectible store and has since taken up writing. His book published in 2011, True Haunting, details his experiences with the paranormal. 
A movie adaptation of the same name will be released sometime this year. Currently, Edwin's home is filled with blessed items in every room, and the entire building has also been blessed, but they'll still occasionally get what they call travelers. The Beckers have noticed that during the holiday seasons, they get an increase in harmless paranormal activity, and they believe it's their deceased relatives visiting them. Supposedly, he has caught their orbs on camera. Many other paranormal enthusiasts have also sent him mysterious photos that they've taken. One of his daughters is a professional photographer, so Edwin sends the pictures over to her to examine them. Almost every single time, his daughter will recreate the phenomenon using Photoshop or camera tricks and point out that they're fake. But Edwin says that single orbs are difficult to recreate. And he also argues that just because you can recreate something doesn't mean it's phony. One of the scariest photos he had ever caught at the house was a picture of the mysterious elderly lady at the bottom of their stairs. Edwin later asked Danny if he knew the woman in the photo, but Danny had no idea who she was. Edwin believes he caught a picture of the ghost of the woman who had died in the house. Skeptics pointed out that the ghosts in physical form are almost impossible to capture on film, but Edwin argues that no one knows for certain what a ghost on film looks like. The other piece of evidence they have on film is the old newsreel. As for the video footage, Edwin doesn't like going back and watching the newsreel because he says he still has trauma to this day. Out of curiosity, years after the fact, he requested any of the extra footage from the two days the NBC crew was at the house. They told him he could have all the footage, but when they dug through the archives, all the footage had been mysteriously lost. The only footage that remains is the original six-minute news clip. Supposedly, Edwin also had a website that I tried to find. It looks like it's gone now. That's where he said he had posted the picture of the woman and I think he had also posted some of the recordings that he had caught, but there's just not a trace of it now. I don't know what happened to his website. But after everything, uh, here's some of Edwin's beliefs on his experiences. He believes ghosts are intelligent and they have the ability to lie, but they're typically not malevolent. Many are trapped here in this realm, but the reason is usually a mystery. He believes that objects from a possessed house will be connected to that house forever. But at the same time, he did keep the jar with bullets that he found in the basement all those years ago as a memento. So even he realizes maybe these things stayed with me because I took stuff from that house on Campbell Street. He advises anyone who thinks they're experiencing something supernatural to listen to your own body. Your physical body can sense certain signals, especially ones sent by a hostile spirit. So the temperature of a room might change or the air will feel heavier. And his other piece of advice is, which we've heard this many times is don't play with Ouija boards. <laughs> he thinks that was a big reason, especially for his sister. Um, she kind of went down a dark path, but he thinks that the Ouija boards were definitely a part of it. And he believes that they do not connect you to loved ones who have passed away, which is usually how they're advertised, right? If you're successful, you can only connect to the most dominant energies on the opposite side, which are often he believes demons and he believes there's this hierarchy to hell and that demons control legions of other demons and only a true exorcist can stand against them. So basically if you use a Ouija board, expect to go up potentially legions of demons from hell. He believes that they might claim to be your loved ones, but it's only a trick. And that sounds a lot like Sozo, right? He also believes that seeking out ghosts and paranormal activity is extremely dangerous. In his words, you don't know if you're going to, quote, come across a teddy bear or a raptor. 
And even after you leave a haunted location, residual attachments can cling to you. Now Edwin believes he's in God's good graces and is no longer followed by negative entities. He's now more aware of paranormal activity than he's ever been. Yeah, I tried to look up his blog, his website, anything, his Facebook page, um, but I just couldn't really find much out there. Uh, if any of you guys out there can find anything, post it in the comments, any any links, because I just couldn't find it. It sounds like he's he still publishes books. He has about a dozen books on Amazon, but I just couldn't find any trace of, the, of his so-called evidence, unfortunately, that, that he had. Huh. As for Marsha, which I talked about this earlier, she points out that no paranormal case is ever the same, and it's pointless to label and define things because they could be completely different in someone else's experience we talked about we we agree with that right it's hard to pin down something paranormal but yeah that's the gist unfortunately not not that much physical evidence remains and granted you know this was over 50 years ago so I like a, i like a lot of the things that they said i think they pretty spot on this is, this is one of those cases where i didn't feel like we were getting a lot of ridiculously sounding stories you know what i mean where it starts out with like just your kind of like basic paranormal activity and all of a sudden like you're getting messages on the mirror and, yeah. you know what i mean like the demons are are doing this or that or you know yanking you out of bed and yeah so this this to me seemed very very legit yeah and even edwin talked about how the tabloids were trying to ramp everything up like flying pig heads right through the house and he's like he's that, like, no, that no, no, didn't no. happen yeah. yeah and he's just trying to really like take it seriously and just look at it for what it is and you don't like it's already so extraordinary the way that it, that it is you don't need to like embellish it to right make it seem crazier than it was because yeah. it's already crazy if you really think about it and try to fully understand what's going on here. So Andy was a, he was a computer guy. He didn't even, he was a skeptic right, before he this started, even yeah, went down. Exactly. So it's a good point. And he's like, I like how he's like, had the rational problems that have rational solutions. And then slowly this paranormal activity in his house slowly broke him down until he now fully accepts that there's paranormal activity. But I also like the fact I kind of trusted him too, because even after he would see these things happening in the house. He's like, well, they're not harming us. Like there's weird stuff going on, but it's not like it's hurting anyone. Right. 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 So I like that. I liked that take. That's such like a very practical take on it. Like, Hey, it's not that it's more of an inconvenience than, than something dangerous. And then obviously things started ramping up, but yeah. Cause I think what they, the priest determined that it's not, it's earthbound. Yeah. The spirits, psychic. Yeah. That it's not demonic activity going on that it's it's just people who somehow associated with the home live there that just you know part of their part of them or all of them are still there uh, lingering in in the home that they haven't been able to you know fully move on yeah and i think that's very interesting that it reminds that me that determination it reminds me of the sixth sense yeah uh, ghosts yeah. that are there they always have like something that they need to figure out before they can kind of be released right yeah just because it's a haunting doesn't necessarily mean it's some malevolent entity or yeah uh, a demon or something like that that it could just literally be those that you know those that live there or maybe experienced tragic tragedy at the end of their life or died in a 
a tragic way and you know for whatever reason that we don't understand they aren't able to to cross over uh to the other side and move on or their soul is somehow trapped here in this realm yeah and you know they're just kind of like i need to be acknowledged i need attention i need need to you know be be set free somehow must get pretty boring after all yeah i know i'd be pretty pissed too you know i'd be i'd be uh trying to break out of this this reality after a while so it makes sense screw with someone's keyboard or their microphone maybe yeah i know my god i don't know what's going on here there's maybe there's something trapped here i don't know some of the things that go on in here i just i don't have any explanation for it's working fine now yeah i'm interested to see if that stuff shows up in post because that was just bizarre yeah and like we've done this is the first time that that's really happened i think i've never heard that ever since any of the other sets in the past like that? I, the, some of these issues are similar to what i experienced in the last studio it's weird that i was literally talking about the old studio and what was yeah. going on there and of course during this episode we start seeing similar i'm like oh man hopefully something didn't come over with yeah. with me when i moved things over here well hey according but, to edwin it's got residual energy yeah so. maybe there is maybe yeah. i mean these are the same mics and stuff so maybe they're it's attached to the these things somehow but yeah very very weird but let us know your thoughts on this episode uh let us know if you uh if you believe you believe the things that that transpired in the story I, I tend to think that this was a very believable one and i i i don't have any reason to not believe yeah. that all everything happened the way that edwin and marcia said it did yeah nothing outlandish the fact that they're kind of like got annoyed with I mean, the they had a news crew too. in there too it was yeah. like, you know if it, why would a news crew come in there if it was just like this hoaxed right story i mean that's not beneficial for anybody that wasn't i don't know it's like it's not cheap getting an entire news crew out there for a few days running film you know no no what about you mr uh skeptic over there daniel what do you think of this this story so as a skeptic obviously uh i don't fully believe in this uh but what what do you think happened then what do you think it's just like he's trying to get attention and so my girlfriend actually told me about the carbon monoxide theory. I don't know yeah. if either of you guys have heard about this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this before. And I kind of believe that could be playing a part in this, especially since it's an older building. They say it was around from the like 1930s. I think they might have had acute carbon monoxide poisoning because it would explain the dog leaving and then not coming back. Dogs, that's one of the things dogs do is they don't go back into homes that have carbon monoxide poisoning because they can sense it. Uh, part of the symptoms is, you know, confusion, uh, memory loss, um, agitation, and I think those kind of go in tandem with some of the things that these people were experiencing. And the fact that it is not outlandish kind of makes me believe that there is a more real-world explanation for this. Can it explain everything? No. But, I mean, they weren't able to get anything on recording because they would stop once you hit the record button. That might have been a hallucination in his own mind. I, I don't know. Okay. I wasn't there. Okay. We only have a six-minute clip of it but in my mind that makes more sense to me but of all the cases that we have covered this one does seem to i would say this one is the most believable to okay. be true yeah all i right. say it's the most reasonable and the carbon monoxide things makes me think of there was this big reddit post back in the day where this guy thought that someone was sneaking into his house he thought it might have been his landlord and they keep they kept putting up these small post-it notes all over his apartment and he couldn't figure it out. He's like, is this an entity? Is my landlord breaking in at night? 
I'm not sure what's going on. So he posts his problem on Reddit. And yeah, sure enough, the top comment is like, check the batteries in your carbon monoxide detector. You might have carbon monoxide poisoning. That was the solution in the end. He was writing the post-it notes himself and completely forgetting. So he thought it was something else contacting him. So yeah, there's like, I can, I can kind of get on board with a carbon monoxide leak. When were carbon monoxide detectors introduced into homes? That's a good question. I'm curious if, if that was a thing in the 1970s or not. Cause like, I've always thought that any carbon monoxide, I mean, is there such a thing as just like slow release carbon monoxide poisoning? Like I always thought that, that like event that's going to kill you. It, it can be lethal, uh, but it depends on how bad the leak is. Huh. Yeah, I'm curious because the closest yeah. thing I found is that combined carbon monoxide and smoke detectors hit the market in 1996. Okay. Wow. Okay. There it is. Or maybe look up when was carbon monoxide poisoning discovered? Uh, I did look that up. Carbon monoxide having negative effects on the human body was discovered in like 1850. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking by 1970. There's and if you have the whole news crew, or look up when was the first carbon monoxide detector invented? But also, even if you had the entire news crew in there, like whatever, how many people that would be? Let's let's say there's like ten people in the home for multiple days at a time. Wouldn't What's everyone the chance start everybody's going to gonna like, get sick? Yeah, or people be would other be like, "Hey, are you feeling too. funny? I'm yeah. feeling a little funny, like yeah. in the head." So yeah. I think it would be easier to identify with multiple people. 1925 was when the first carbon monoxide detector. Bingo! Was developed. All right, so yeah, they definitely. I I I under I think that is probably the case in some paranormal cases but i i tend to think that that's very rare that that's you know when when it happens it usually happens where it's like real bad and you know yeah it's killing people i haven't heard a ton of ton of examples of slow drip carbon monoxide poisoning leading to paranormal and if it is there's not too much of a documented story about it it's like the reddit post where he's like i'm finding weird post-it notes and then it's like Hey, it's carbon monoxide poison. Yeah. And that's basically all there is to it, you know? But Illinois did not require carbon monoxide detectors in dwellings until 2007. Whoa. Oh, okay. All right. So maybe, maybe they didn't have one. And the house was built pre-Great Depression, so it was built in the 1920s. And, I mean, we used to have lead paint on walls, so... That's true. I mean, there There's, could always be some type... It could be, you know, you could argue that mold, you know, people that have, exactly. like black mold that don't yeah. know about it could be getting hallucinating from stuff like that and he was doing a lot of weird stuff in the basement yeah. who knows what type of housework he was getting into as well and there's always weird theories like the theory about like the salem witch trials and the uh the uh the rye bread like the the rye wheat being having that oh uncle. yeah yeah like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the, and i mean it goes back to i mean when they're talking about um uh mass hysteria events things like that due to things like that they're all eating rye you know grain or whatever that's poisoned but here's the thing with this case is he they did move houses right exactly or locations and they still experience paranormal events so it's like travelers yeah so it's hard to yeah it's hard to nail that as like a plausible theory when they go to a different whole different location itself so it's like oh is it the same thing happening there yeah Something, something unexplainable is happening. But I do appreciate the the rational, the <laughs> rational explanations for why these things happen because it's it's true. There's always a possibility there's something rational that could be going on that maybe we just don't know about or can't see, and therefore is leading to 
things happening. But I think in this particular case, this is a case of we don't know what the hell's going on. There's something yeah. something weird, something unexplainable. And that's why I really appreciated Marsha's point. She's like, you just, you can't label this type of stuff. It's hard to define, and yeah. it's 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 fleeting. There are moments you I mean, can't catch, yeah. you know. Right, right. You can only uh, choose to believe or not, I guess. Yeah. At the end of the day, but that is it for us today. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. We'll catch you next week with another spooky one. And until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>